my sons this week just about uh, their Bible times. They, they are reading the scriptures in the morning on their own little plans. And um, one of my sons said in a tone of confession, um, sometimes I think the Bible is weird and I don't understand it. Um, and I was then able to say to him, I don't understand it sometimes either, to which I got a very visceral you know, reaction like, oh, they're so young. You know, This is a hard book. Now, it's a true book. It's worthwhile to put in the time to understand it. But we have to know that when we come to the scriptures, we're coming uh, with, a, with a distance, with a separation from the events that happened in the passage. And in particular, in the book of First and Second Thessalonians, Paul talks a lot about the return of Christ. And he keeps saying this phrase, or some variation of this phrase over and over again, just, just like when I was with you, or as I told you when I was there. And he does this over and over again, and the problem is that we don't know what he said when he was there. All we have is the letter, and now the letter is enough. We believe that God has given us the letter, and it's enough for us for, uh, for godliness and righteousness, as the Scripture says. It is enough for us, but we need to recognize that there's a lot we don't know, and it's very important as we come to the passage that we're going to look at today, probably the most, if not one of the most, if not the most, contested uh, passages and scriptures in terms of our understanding. Now, you may know that some scholars question the validity of the Bible, and they you know, wonder if certain people wrote certain books that say that they did. Everybody pretty much agrees that Paul writes this. Everybody pretty much agrees that this belongs in the Bible. The problem is that we don't fully understand what it's talking about, and there's lots of discussion and yet, what I believe, that there's a very clear line running through this passage that shows us exactly what we should be watching out for, for the deception that comes when we think about the end of the world and this mysterious man of lawlessness, which is what we're going to talk about today. Let's read these first 12 verses together. Now, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now, so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And when the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming... The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan, with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. 
This is the word of the Lord. Let's say a name, Adolf Hitler. And I, I bet that you're immediately interested. I bet that Adolf Hitler is someone who fascinates you, maybe terrifies you, but someone who you are interested in. Who was this individual? The leader of the Nazi party, then the chancellor of Germany, then the Fuhrer of Germany during World War II, responsible directly or indirectly for the death of six million plus Jewish people. And at the top of our understanding of this, when we say Holocaust or we say any of these words, we think Adolf Hitler, and we're interested in him as an individual. We're fascinated to learn about his life and the things that he said and the things that he studied. For instance, it's common to bring up that Hitler was a failed artist, that he was rejected from art school, and we do this kind of, uh, you know, alternative uh, history in our mind. What if he had been accepted to art school? What How would history have been different? Fascinating. Yes, he is a fascinating individual. But I want to say to us that Hitler, who he was and everything about him that we can know, is not the most surprising or important fact to know about Nazi Germany or World War II. The fact that one person could become so powerful and so have such evil intention is interesting, it's fascinating, it's terrifying, but it's also not that surprising. When you take a, you know, a view of the world where there, someone's going to be evil and someone's going to rise to the top, that's not all that surprising. But there is something that's surprising and fascinating and very challenging to think about, it, and that's this. The fact that the German population and military went along with it. That's the real historical question, isn't it? Not, not, is Hitler bad? We all agree that he is, but why did he have so much support? Isn't that even more important and even more terrifying in a way? How could he be tolerated? I was a history major, and so I have studied these things and find them very interesting if you're interested a number of scholars say a number of things, that perhaps it was um, the fact that the Treaty of Versailles was signed after World War I, where Germany was punished heavily with fines for starting World War I, and, and so their economy was, was tanked for so long, and they were very frustrated, and there was a, a spirit of frustration and anger. Maybe that was what Nazism was. It was at work, this under, uh, undergirding of anger. Perhaps it was uh, also in part the propaganda. Of course, Nazism didn't just happen all of a sudden in Germany. It was a slow trickle of influence over time. Joseph Goebbels was famous for doing these ads against the Jewish people, and so it slowly started to trickle in. Hitler Youth Program, where the, the young people in Germany were told certain things, to believe certain things, to get them when they're young was part of the strategy. Conscription, drafting men into the army. So many men, almost all the men in Germany, so much so that how could a country rise up against itself? How could someone speak out when so many people were in the army itself? Who would stand against them? 
All of these things were, were part of Nazism at work. Yes, Adolf Hitler was at the top, but there was something else that enabled it all to work. Nazism had a figurehead, but it also was at work in the world. And the important historical question for us to ask would be, a challenging question would be, would I have gone along with it? Not do I believe that Hitler was bad, because we all do and it's easy to say, but would I have gone along with him in the same circumstance? That's a challenging question. This backdrop is what I think is true also of our understanding of the man of lawlessness that Paul writes about here. He's talking about a figurehead, a man of lawlessness. The word there is just sin. Sin means lawlessness. Uh, and so sometimes this is called the man of sin. We are fascinated by this figurehead. Who was his identity? What did he do? Has he already come? Is he in the future? And we're going to talk about some of those things. But as fascinating as that is, there's actually a more important question that Paul threads throughout this whole passage, which is that lawlessness is at work in the world. Look at verse 7. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. And the key to lawlessness that Paul warns us about here is deception. Look at verse 3 with me. Let no one deceive you in any way. Look at verse 9. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power, false, false signs and wonders, that's that deception, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing. This is the power of lawlessness is that it has the ability to deceive us and if we are deceived, then we are of the perishing that he talks about here. And so the question that threads throughout that we need to be asking is, how can we not be deceived by the spirit of lawlessness, by the lawlessness that's at work in the world? There is a figurehead, and we're going to talk about him, but there is a mystery of deception at work. So here's the question I want us to ask. How do we recognize lawlessness at work in the world? How do we recognize lawlessness? Because Paul here is keen to warn us about some things that we need to watch for. In particular, I want us to summarize it this way with three deceptions that we need to watch for. And you'll see that these deceptions are not just true of the first century. They are true of our time as well and any other time in the church. The first deception that we need to watch for is this. Deception number one that we can know something beyond what the apostles taught. When it comes to lawlessness, this is the first deception that Paul talks about, that we would be swerved away by false teaching so that we would believe something new and novel. This is how lawlessness gets spread in the world to begin with. Look at the first few verses with me, starting in verse 1. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ... And our being gathered to him, side note, when he says these thing, these thing, the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, those two phrases share one, um, one article. It's, they're, they're the same event, in other words, is what I'm saying. The coming and the gathering is one thing that, that Paul is talking about here. Just a side note, as we talked about a few weeks ago, 
the coming of the Lord is not to be separated from a rapture and then a coming of the Lord later. Rather, he sees the gathering, which is what he referred to as the rapture before, and the coming of the Lord as one event. Just a side note there. Concerning the, that, that one event that's coming, that you brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. He says, I want to warn you first that there's going to be those who are going to come among you that are going to teach you something different than what we have taught you. And I want you to not be shaken in mind. That means to not be unswerved, to be swerved by, by a different perspective. I want you to have a single mind, a solid mind, and I don't want you to be excited, alarmed. I don't want you to be excitable. We need this word when we're talking about uh, the end times, by the way, from Paul. Paul says here, when you're talking about the coming of the Lord, I don't want you to be excitable, which is kind of what, what we always do when we talk about the end times. So uh, if you're new here, uh, this is your first Sunday here, this is not something that we delight to get out the charts and graphs and look at every single thing um, that we possibly can and get excitable about it. But we do want to talk about it because we do delight in looking at what the Scriptures say. And what the Scriptures tell us is limited, but He does tell us about the return of Christ. And He says, look, I've already told you what you need to know when I was with you. Now, we don't know all of what He said when He was there. But He's warning them that false teachers are going to come in, and He doesn't know how they're going to communicate. He doesn't know if they're going to give a spoken word or if they're going to write a letter, if they're going to appear as a spirit even. Um, but maybe they'll write a letter saying they're from Paul, Silas, and Timothy. And what what's their message? That the Lord has come. That the Lord has come. And that's a deception, Paul says. It's a deception. Now, what does that mean, that the Lord has come? There's two possibilities that Paul could be warning them against. The first would be to say, just as the ESV does here, that the Lord has come, that the Lord, in other words, has come in some mystical or spiritual sense, that the, first, the coming of the Lord as promised by us, the apostles, that is going to be a bodily return and that there's going to be a new kingdom and all this stuff. You don't have to believe all that. You just need to believe that the Spirit of Christ is here. He's already come back. And so what he could be challenging is an enlightenment now versus a salvation later, that the Lord has come similar to what he does in 2 Timothy when Paul warns them that not to be careful not to swerve away from the truth as some have done who say that the resurrection has already happened. The idea there is that you already have what you need. You have your best life now. You don't have to wait for the coming of the Lord. It, what matters is the Spirit of Christ that has returned. That could be what he's saying and in fact, other groups have historically said that Christ did return without us knowing it. In 1914, for instance, the Jehovah's Witnesses said that on October 1st, Christ came secretly in 1914. Or it could be what Paul is saying here is this. You could translate it this way, that the Lord is in the process of coming. And the idea here is it's promising a specific return date of Christ. That they would say that the Lord is, he's not, you know, we don't know if he's coming today or tomorrow, but he's definitely coming this month. You can count on it. Uh, he is coming, quit your job, you know, just, just live however you want to live. He's coming like very soon. That could be 
what he is saying, and that would fit with the rest of Thessalonians because what he's going to challenge the people to do later is to be disciplined and stay at their work. Regardless of which thing he's challenging, the main thing that he's saying here is this, don't be deceived by those who give an extra message from me. Remember what we talked about. Don't read the letters that seem to be from us. Read only the letters that are from us. Work hard at knowing what we said when we were in your midst. The apostolic witness is important. The key here of how lawlessness works, the, like Nazism that works in Germany, the thing that can kind of work in our world is that novelty is what matters the most. Originality. To say something different than what the apostles said. And of course, when the man of lawlessness comes, he's not going to come in a vacuum, as Paul would say. He's not going to come and just say things that don't make sense to people. He's going to say things that are enticing to them because of their novelty. Lawlessness is at work where there is an idea that we can know something beyond what the apostles taught. But don't be deceived, Paul says. In other words, everything that we believe about the world needs to be examined through the apostolic teaching. We are an apostolic church. We recite the Apostles' Creed, which we believe historically to be very close to the Apostles' time, which captures the essence of our faith. We believe the Scriptures written primarily the New Testament by the apostles who were men carried along by the Holy Spirit, giving us God's Word. And so we look very closely at what it says and what it doesn't say. Paul says in this case, they're false teachers because they're wrong about the coming of Christ. Either way, they're wrong. Whether he's saying that he has come spiritually in some kind of way or that he's about to come like next month, Paul says they're wrong on both of those counts because two things haven't happened yet. Verse 3, let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction or the son of perdition. Two things that happen before the coming of the Lord, Paul says, is that there will be a rebellion, the word there is apostasia. This is, this is apostasy, the falling away of faith. That's all we get here. There's other scripture passages that talk about the falling away or the great apostasy. But then he moves quickly on to what he's going to spend the rest of the chapter talking about, which is this man of lawlessness, this figurehead of lawlessness. And we need to see that the spirit of lawlessness, the mystery of lawlessness is at work in this man in a very particular way. And it leads us to the second deception, which is this, that the self is the greatest God. That the self is the greatest God. This man of lawlessness, this is what he embodies. He sets himself up against the Lord, verse 4, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God proclaiming himself to be God. Man of lawlessness. He's called here the son of perdition, the son of destruction. That me phrase means 
Not that he destroys, but that he is the destroyed one. He is the, he is the doomed one. Drawing on Old Testament language here about the children of wrath. This is the, the God has already placed his mark of destruction, in other words, on this one, this one who opposes and exalts himself above all other gods. That is his particular deception that I am God. Who is the man of lawlessness? We have questions about this. Let's spend just a minute talking about it since I know that our curiosity is raised. Who is this? We have questions. Is this a person, a historical person, or is this an institution of some kind? Is it one person, or is it possible to see this as multiple fulfillments? There was one person in the first century and one person later. We wonder, is this a political figure? Is this a religious figure? Is this a military figure or some combination? Is this a person in the past only or a person in the future? Well, I think the first thing that we need to do is see how this passage ties in with the other passages that talk about this figure. There are three names that the Scripture gives to this person or institution and I do believe it's right for us to tie them all together. The, the only two biblical writers who write about him are the Apostle Paul and the Apostle John. Paul here in 2 Thessalonians calls him the man of sin or the man of lawlessness. John writes in two different ways about this. In the, his epistles, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, he writes about the Antichrist. And in the book of Revelation, which is a revelation to John, he writes about this as the beast who rises out of the sea, or perhaps the first and second beast um, in the book of Revelation. Let's go to those passages real quick. I'll give you the short version of these from John, because in 1 John chapter 2, he calls them the Antichrist. Children, he says, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming So now many antichrists have come. Therefore we know that it is the last hour. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? That is the antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. Now when John uses the word antichrist there, it's important to see uh, what he means by that. What he means by anti there is in the place of Christ. Um, just like in English, we use the prefix anti uh, in Greek can mean a couple of different things. Like in English, when we say in a literary sense that we have in a story an antagonist, we can also have an anti-hero. Those two words have the same prefix anti um, in the in anti-protagonist or antagonist means someone who works against the protagonist, against the hero. That's the first sense of the word anti, antagonist. Well, what is an anti-hero then? It's not, it's not the same way of saying the same thing. The anti-hero means anti in a different sense. It means in the place of. We have a hero who's not acting like a hero, who's trying to be in the place of a hero, but they're not the true hero. That's the anti-hero. The, the second sense is what is meant right here, that There is an antichrist, one who stands in the place of Christ, which aligns with 2 Thessalonians' vision, where this man comes in to the temple and exalts himself as God. Skipping to Revelation chapter 13, 
various verses, we see how John writes about this. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon, that is Satan, gave his power and his throne and great authority. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb and it spoke like a dragon. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. There's too many parallels in these passages to to identify these as a different thing. As John and Paul are writing about the same thing, about this man of lawlessness, this antichrist, this beast. And as we look at the identity of who this is, there's really three possibilities. Um, And the first two are arguing that this person came in the first century. In other words, what Paul was writing about um, and what John was writing about, they anticipated it happening within their lifetimes and they saw it happen historically. Now you might ask, why would we do that? It seems pretty clear that this is about the future, about the end times. And as we look at the book of Revelation, surely that is about the end times as well. Well, there's, there are references here to the end of time, but there are also references here that tell us that we could expect it possibly sooner than that. For instance, both John and Paul talk about this being at work already, or that, the, that already the Antichrist is in the world. And let's not forget that the book of Revelation in the very first verse begins by telling us that these are the things that are about to take place. A hint there, perhaps, that we could read the book of Revelation not just as a future understanding, but as something that is related to what John was about to go through. There's much debate about this. I'm simply summarizing here. The option number one would be, and who this is, would be that this would be the Emperor Nero. If this has a first century explanation, Nero probably fits the best. He is an emperor of Rome who persecuted the church. Horrible human being. Certainly lawless. A law unto himself. He proclaimed himself as free from the law. And also he persecuted Christians. Blamed Christians for the burning of Rome. There are stories of him using Christians lighting them on fire to light up his dinner parties. He killed his own family members. He killed his own wife. There are stories of him mutilating genitals. There's just horrible things about Nero. Do we have a reason to think of him as the biblical antichrist or man of lawlessness? Well, the historian Apollonius tells us that one of the favorite nicknames for Nero amongst the common people was the beast. He says this in one of his early historical work. I have seen many wild beasts of Arabia and India, but this beast, he's talking about Nero, that is commonly called a tyrant, I know not how many heads it has. You see the similar language from the book of Revelation, the seven-headed beast. There's also the use of the cryptograms, in the book of Revelation, which is that number 666. 
A cryptogram is just a, a letter or a word, sorry, a number that has reference to a word or a letter. Just like Roman numerals, V is five, C is 100. We can, we can do this with language. People have always done this with language, is make cryptograms. And there is a way that you can understand the number 666 as spelling out Nero Caesar. Now, um, before we jump to conspiracy theories and get out our charts and graphs and the number of man, 666, and always places we see it in the Bible, we have to ask, why was the book of Revelation written? And why would it be used? Why would a cryptogram be used here? It could be as simple as this, to protect the persecuted who are reading this work of John, who are passing it along, who would know the beast is Nero and the 666. Let those who can calculate the number of the beast know 666. This is who we are talking about. There is evidence that some in the early church believed that Nero was the Antichrist or the man of lawlessness. For instance, there are variations on that word, on that number, 666, in some places to be 616, which would be a way of making Nero's name fit in a different way. We're not going to go into all this. But here's the, here's the idea. There are things that fit in this passage about Nero. Did Nero seat himself in the temple of God? No. He didn't do that, although he did put up his image in the temple of Mars, the, the Roman god. But someone else historically also put up their image in the temple, that is the Jerusalem temple, and demanded worship. But it wasn't Nero. It was actually the emperor, two emperors before him, which was Caligula. And so this image of sitting in the temple, if we're looking for a first century explanation, if we're trying to understand this passage historically, that this is something that's about to happen, then Caligula fits better there, leading some to think maybe there's a second option. Maybe it's not either Nero or Caligula, but perhaps Rome itself. That would be this beast, this man of lawlessness. It need not, they say, refer to a single person, but could refer to an institution. And perhaps this is an explanation for what Revelation says about the beast having seven horns. <clears throat> when Rome was established, one of the common names to refer to Rome was Septa Montium, the seven hills or the seven mountains. And so if you look at a map of Rome, it would rise up like heads on a beast. If you were thinking that Rome was uh, the, the beast to get set against God, then it could appear that way on a map. So maybe you're attracted to that understanding and makes sense of many of the details here, but not all of them. <laughs> because verse 8 ties the coming of Christ to the destruction of the man of lawlessness Verse 8, and when the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. This would indicate, seemingly, in some kind of future rebellion and some kind of future falling away and some kind of future man of lawlessness. I don't know what the answer to this is. Perhaps it's best to, to look for the first century explanations as satisfying this. But like a lot of prophecies in Scripture, they had immediate fulfillment. Um, you know, 
Prophecies about Jesus Christ, for instance, in the Old Testament. Unto us a son is born. is about Hezekiah, but also about Christ. There are multiple fulfillments of prophecy. Prophecy isn't some kind of just predictive thing that somebody spits out. It's a way of writing that lets us in on the present and the future, always. And so it serves this purpose. Perhaps it's best to see this as having some immediate fulfillment and some future fulfillment. But I don't think it's the main thing in, any, in either case. The main thing that Paul is doing is warning them against being deceived. It's the warning against lawlessness at work. And he tells us that one of the ways that this figurehead of lawlessness works is one of the ways that lawlessness works in general. It's replacing the self with God. That is deception. This deception that the man of lawlessness embodies. But it's not new to him. Where do we see this? It's the very first deception. You shall not surely die. For God knows on the day that you eat of it, that is the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will become like God, knowing good and evil. To become like God is the original deception. It was the original lawlessness that God created us with freedom of all the trees in the garden you may eat, but also with the law of this one tree you may not eat. And lawlessness was to walk away from that command and to eat the fruit anyway out of a desire to be God. And so Paul is warning us here not just to watch out for the one who is going to embody this deception, but to watch out for the deception itself, this Definition of sin is lawlessness, and its origin is in the garden. To put God out of his place and to step into that place ourselves. Everywhere we turn now, do we not see the mystery of lawlessness at work? That the self is the greatest God. That attention to ourselves, that our own fulfillment, that our own happiness that our own whatever is, is the thing that we seek more so than living in God's law. He says, watch out for this. There's a deception. It's embodied in a person, but it's everywhere. Stay close to the apostolic teaching, but also watch out for this deception of trying to be God yourself. There's a third deception. We'll close with this one. The third deception is that the truth is something to be shaped to our own desires. Hard end of the passage here. Let's read it together. Verse 9 and following. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may not believe they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Hard word here about the perishing. There's a lack of salvation. Do you notice why they're not saved? Because of their desires. 
Two places he says, they refused to love the truth. And then at the end, they had pleasure in unrighteousness. They refused to love the truth on the negative side and on the positive side did love unrighteousness. How do we keep ourselves from deception? Well, it's by returning to this, loving what God loves and not loving what God does not love and growing in our love for what God has given us. If we do that, we will not be deceived. Notice the first judgment that God sends is not the perishing, but is the deception. He sends a deception on those who are deceived. He gives them over to their already deception. Why would he do that? Why would God send a delusion? Why would he start? This is the beginning of the judgment process. He gives them over to their deception. We know that Jesus did the exact same thing when he told his parables. He told his parables, these mysterious stories, and when the disciples who were humble and clueless about it, they came to him in humility and they said, will you teach us this? Jesus taught them the stories and what they meant in no uncertain terms. But when some of the Pharisees and the scribes who came in their arrogance came to Jesus, what did he say? He said, I'm going to keep telling you the parables so that in hearing you will not hear. You're not coming to me, in other words. You're not coming to me because you love me, because you love my law. You're coming to, to one-up me. You're coming to displace me. And if that's the case, then you can stay in your deception. And I'll even add to it by saying more parables. This is what God does. The first step in judgment is turning people over to their own deceptions. We've got to ask ourselves, do you love the truth of God? Even when it's hard. Think about when it's hard. It's hard today. It's hard to hear a message. It's hard to read these passages. And if it's your first time here, we don't read passages like this every Sunday. We don't lean into this every, every single time. But we do lean into it. Because to ignore it would be to ignore what God's Word says. And we want to love the truth. We don't want to be ashamed of the truth. We want to just say what it says and believe it. It's hard when Christ challenges our prevailing views of sexuality and sexual ethics. It's hard when we don't understand the problem of evil. It's hard when we talk about judgment. But this is how we keep ourselves from deception. It's by following the truth and growing to love the truth even when it's painful. In Germany, Nazi Germany, there was lawlessness at work. And there was a man of lawlessness as the head of the state. And people faced insane pressure. Life-threatening pressure to be lawless. That is to take lives of other people. And it was possible and probable even that they would take pleasure, begin to take pleasure in that unrighteousness. 
the mystery that was at work in Germany was powerful. It had an effect. And many, many began to love unrighteousness. But not all of them. There was a remnant who worked against the spirit of the day, who hid Jewish people, who even worked to assassinate this man of sin, who didn't cave but loved the truth even when it was costly to love the truth. And on that day, VE Day, Victory in Europe Day, they were vindicated and not ashamed because they had done what was right when it was hard. But many were ashamed. Many grew to love the unrighteousness and refused to love the truth. How can we be vindicated on that day? This day is the coming of the Lord. I have good news. It's not by being lawful yourself. Because it would be easy to say that what we need to do to not be ashamed is to keep the law of God. If lawlessness is set against Christ, then lawfulness would be to keep the law and therefore not be ashamed. But the scripture tells us that all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Same word, all of us are lawless. All of us have walked away from him. We have broken God's law. And so it cannot be that vindication on that day would be because of our virtue. Our hope is not in our ability to keep the law, but in our union with the lawkeeper, Jesus Christ. There is one, a man of lawfulness. That is how the scriptures describe it. He is without sin, without lawlessness. And when he came into the world, he kept the law that we had broken. And our union with him means that when we profess faith in the name of Jesus Christ, are united to him, we receive his lawfulness, and he is punished for our lawlessness. And the great hope that the scripture gives us is that Jesus will kill with his breath or by his spirit the lawless one. Jesus destroys lawlessness in two ways. The first way is that he destroys it in himself. He takes on the place of the lawless ones who have given in to the spirit or the mystery of lawlessness at work in the world. And he makes them, through his atoning death, law keepers. And so if you are in Christ, you will stand on that day vindicated, not because of your law keeping, but because of his and you will not be ashamed. You have no reason to be ashamed because you are covered in his blood and vindicated by him. But God also will destroy lawlessness by his spirit. 
in the end. And so the promise is not just that we will receive his law keeping, but that we will then live in a world that is without sin, without lawlessness. There can be no lawlessness when Jesus is the king fully and finally. He kills the man of sin, the figurehead, and he destroys how it works in the world by taking it on himself and then by coming in victory. And that's what we're looking forward to. We have hope now because of what he's done on the cross, and we have hope in the future because of what he will do to all those who oppose him. Let's pray.